Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This is your host, Auntie Vice. It's great to have you back with us. And today we have Gretchen Felker Martin. She is an author and put out the amazing horror novel, Manhunt. She also runs Deadlight Theater on Discord, where people can watch horror movies together. And she's written a number of other novels and uh, novellas that she's put out under different brands. She has been deemed the filth core queen. And if you listen to the show regularly is the author that Meg Ellison has said, if you liked the unnamed midwife, you have to read manhunt because it is a much better book. Welcome to the show, man. That is, I love Meg. That is such high praise. And thank you so much for having me on. It's so great to be here. Yeah, yeah. No, Meg was just raving about your work on the show she did a couple weeks ago for us. And ah. uh, was the one who who pushed me and said, you really should reach out. Because I was like, I'm not going to reach out to an author that big. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Meg is fantastic. You have been deemed the filth court queen. You have built a career around horror. So I want to ask, what got you into the horror horror genre? Well, when I was a kid, I had a a very hard time learning to read. I couldn't read until I was almost 10. And so when I finally did start reading, my parents let me read whatever the hell I wanted Mm -hmm. because at least I was doing it. And so at 10 and 11, I was getting into Stephen King. I was picking up Clive Barker. I was getting into this really intense psychosexual stuff way too young. (laughs) And it definitely had a profound impact on me. Even a, But even before that, even as a young kid, whenever something scared me, I wanted to experience it again right away. That's awesome. So when you start reading these books and you start seeing how people are imagining, you know, different kind of horror worlds, which ones really stuck with you? I would say probably the single biggest influence on my early love for horror was Stephen King's It. I read it when I was the same age as the kids who are, are being preyed on by this shape-shifting entity. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just devastating to me. And, you know, also as a, a kid with experiences of abuse to see all these kids who are being neglected and beaten and verbally abused by their parents going through this incredibly difficult experience alone really, really resonated with me. So when you started writing... What what was your initial foray into the horror genre in your own writing? I think the first horror story I wrote was No End Will Be Found, which is about the witch trials in 17th century Wurzburg, Germany, 
And it's about a, a young wet nurse named Anne who's accused of witchcraft after a baby that is in her care dies and then gets interrogated and tortured and executed. So as you're putting this together, you bring up the, the psychosexual connection. And obviously with a wet nurse, there's, there's a bit of that, that erotic connection. Is fear part of erotica for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that horror and erotica are very closely conjoined genres because they're both trying to evoke a physical response in the reader, mm-hmm. whether it's arousal or, or the, the fight or flight fear response. You know, I, I would agree with that. And with the reviews of your book, one of the things with Manhunter that has come up repeatedly in the reviews are people are viscerally uncomfortable to read it. <laughs> uh, yeah. But which led me to ask the question, is ho- isn't horror supposed to be like viscerally uncomfortable to read? Like, right? <laughs> like if you want to have a good time, I don't know, <laughs> stick to the YA shelf. Right. I've always been confused by that critique of your book because I thought I've never read the horror genre to feel comfortable. But are there people out there that find comfort in it? Have you come across, you know, because you work in the the field where you have tons of people who consume horror. Is that a thing? I think there are some people who do not absolutely do not want to be challenged by horror. And so they'll take in huge amounts of, of horror, sometimes even horror that is very challenging, but without really engaging in it or opening themselves up to it. So it's, it's just sort of background noise. And I, that's a, a relationship to art that I, I'm just not interested in. Yeah. Have you ever had, have you always had this really strong drive to create with your relationship to your art? Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I dictated my first story to a woman who used to watch me a couple times a week and take me on nature walks. And she's a close family friend. I dictated my first story to her when I was maybe five or six. Does producing that then give you a level of comfort or do you write to make yourself uncomfortable? I definitely try to make myself uncomfortable and that's, that's become more pronounced as I've become older and and sort of more aware of the world around me. I was going to say, as you've, become more aware of your own relationship to your body has that changed the level of, of discomfort you want to put in your own horror is it is are those two related in any way absolutely when i started out writing almost all the characters in my novels were really normative you know i was closeted i was really deeply self-loathing about a lot of aspects of my personality and as i've sort of unfolded as a person, I've put a lot of work into normalizing writing about people who are like me in subversive ways or who are unlike me, but are like people that I love and I'm close to because I don't want to reflect a world full of boring, thin, able-bodied people. It's, it's not interesting to me. And it's, it's like, putting all this work into reproducing a world that hates you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That's a conversation I have with my partner all the time because before we got together, sex on the city was a thing and he watched every episode. Mm -hmm. Like he knows which character he's, he can't understand why I never watched it. And I keep (laughs) explaining watching thin, straight white women in New York just has no, no relevance in my life. Right. Yeah. So with that, one of the things that really caught me, 
in the book was just the opening descriptions of some of the characters being very tall, very big, not able to pass because, well, you know, people on the show can't see it. I'm just over six feet tall and nearly 300 pounds. Mm-hmm. And being big like that changes how you move through the world, right? Absolutely. I, and, I, I'm also in that category. <laughs> yeah. And you've talked about it in other places. So being bigger and both in height as well as in weight, how has that changed how people respond to you when you're in, you know, a in-person setting? Well, it certainly gets me a lot more attention. You know, you notice people turning their heads as you pass by and people are are much sort of more free about making comments about you. Um, there's a certain level of street harassment that comes with it. There's also a certain level of just sort of curiosity. I find especially that little kids are very curious about me. They'll come up and be like, why are you so tall? (laughs) And in general, I would say, yeah, it makes you much more visible, much more vulnerable. That's been my experience too. How do you manage to deal with it? Because at least from my experience, that much attention uh, from strangers is overwhelming. Yeah, I do find it overwhelming. I've I've never been great with crowds or like protracted socialization with large numbers of people in any kind of any kind of way. But I've put a lot of work into it as an adult and I do my best to ignore anyone who isn't who I can see is not coming toward me with with good faith. You just have to you have to filter so much of it out or else it'll it'll burn your brain out right down to the stem. Yeah, and I think that's something that people who can blend in don't realize is how exhausting it can be. No, they have no idea. Yeah. Uh, so for those of us who who really stand out, so I you know, I've seen the pictures and stuff of you online. You have not gone subtle with your look either, right? Um no. you have kind of a goth look and everything and in, in, right. in quite a few of them. Is that part of embracing the fact that people are going to notice you, so why not go big or, you know, or go home? Or is that, or was it more the horror that drove you to the whole goth look? Like, how did you put that together? Hey, you know, I started, I've, I've always been fascinated by goth fashion. Um, I had all of the usual, like, heart-rending crushes on Hot Topic cashiers. <laughs> and I, I dated a bunch of goths in high school. I think, to me, there is a sort of, like, freedom in just dressing like a freakazoid mm-hmm. like i i love my community of weirdos i love to signal to the world that i'm part of them and i'm proud of them to me it's like embracing where i come from and putting the foot forward that i want people to see first let's talk about goss for a minute because in so much of literature and at least in a lot of like popular television and movies, goths are always portrayed as kind of these weirdos, but there's never any character development, right? I can't think of any mainstream show where, where the goth side is truly developed as, as an in-depth character. Um, yeah, the only thing I can think of at all is like Poppy Z. Bright's novels mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or, or B.R. Yeager. Yeah, there's just not a lot of development. So for, but there's a lot of us who went 
either went through a God stage or is still in it. So what is it about that, that group that makes people feel more comfortable? Because a lot of us have kind of felt at home in that, especially if we were non-binary, if we later came out as queer or trans, like that was a home. So what is it about goth that makes it more accepting or, or feel more comfortable, you think? Well, I think when you're visibly signaling to the world that you're a freak, you're showing other freaks that you're safe to be around, that you won't hurt them. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really think it is that simple. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many people that I went to, you know, I, I hung out with the goth crowd too. And it was like, Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense now that you're older. And I think a lot of parents will poo poo it when their kids are going through it. And they think it's some type of rebellious phase. Mm-hmm. rather than really embrace it and saying your kid's letting you know a lot that you yeah. don't. And it's important to encourage that, I think, to let them know that home is a safe place, right? Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's talk a little bit about Manhunt, because obviously it's gotten a ton of attention. One of the funniest things I saw, and he showed up on your Twitter feed the other day, is there are a bunch of TERFs, um, and for the listeners who aren't familiar with it, it's trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Basically, it's women who decide women are only women if they have a pussy and they're really violent towards anybody else, have decided that you haven't given them a fair shake. <laughs> and I wanted to ask, have you ever seen a TERF give trans people a fair shake in their representation? No, I mean, they're, they're fundamentally incoherent and curious people. I genuinely believe, and I, I don't think there's any way a reasonable person could see it otherwise, that the depictions of TERFs in Manhunt are much more generous than almost any real-life TERF I've ever met. I was going to say that. Like, you actually give them some thought and some background. Like, it, it's crazy to me how offended they have become because for any of us who've interacted with them online, they're quite violent from the get-go. Yes, they are completely insane. Yeah. An article actually just dropped today in which bravely unnamed group of TERFs <laughs> took Manhunt. And I, I don't know if they read a summary or something. They got a lot of the facts wrong, but they sort of twist it around until it becomes this like basis for an accusation against me of everything from inciting violence against J.K. Rowling to, like, probable child abuse. I mean, they're they're totally out of their minds. And I think that's so endemic of, of the whole group, because I've never seen Terse actually engage with a dialogue that, that's rational and based in listening to other people. It's always these very twisted things that they they actually haven't read or have any experience with, but they feel very comfortable in in discussing. Yeah, I think it's sort of like a mass. I mean, it's it's basically mob theory, right? Mm -hmm. You get enough people together who are frustrated about enough social stuff and you give them a vulnerable target and they'll just start ranting and raving. Yeah. And and the book portrays that. And while I've seen some reviews say you've taken it to extremes of their behavior, when I read it, I really didn't find it an extreme. I didn't no, find I've, it that out of step to imagine. I do not think there's a single thing in that book that I have not seen paraphrased by a real turf. Exactly. 
Exactly. Well, and I love the the quote you have at the very beginning of the book because it so incorporates everything you see online by them. Right. So you go through this book and you one of the things I loved about it is you give real diversity to trans characters. Um, in too many novels, you'll have one they'll have one trans character where they try to encompass the whole of right. the trans world, right? So you give some real diversity of it. And one of the things that comes up is this conflict between those who can accept the fact that they're never going to pass versus those who are devastated that they can't pass. And I don't think it gets discussed enough in, in the general world about how much of trans identity, where do you, where does it come from of whether or not you want to pass? When do you get to that point where you decide passing in the binary is important versus you're going to accept your, you know, your identity for what it is and do the gender affirmation you want, even if you don't pass to the greater society? You know, I don't know that there's any single answer to that question, but the closest I can come just from my own thoughts and reflections is that it's actually not a process that you think your way through, that it it comes from rejecting thought and rejecting knowing about trans history and thinking about yourself as a trans person. Because when you really take that into your heart, you gain this whole community, you gain this whole world. There's this enormous network of people who are going through the same things you're going, who will love you and welcome you and embrace you. And if what you want is to assimilate into the cis world, the best you can ever hope for is to hide Mm -hmm. because they will will never think of you as one of them. So you bring up learning about trans history and assimilating that into your your identity. There is obviously a massive push in this country right now to try and eliminate any reference to trans folks and LGBTQ folks. And for people who are listening who are thinking, well, it's not that big of a deal and they'll learn about it later. Where did you learn about this stuff and this history? And what would have it meant to have known about this when you were, you know, in your teens rather than later in life? Right. I mean, I I didn't learn a single, I was homeschooled in a fairly homophobic religious environment. And I didn't learn anything about trans people aside from seeing a few in public mm-hmm. until I was in my late teens, early 20s. I mean, I, you know, I had all these feelings. I had these fantasies of being a woman, but I had no framework for any of it. And when you deny kids access to that kind of information, you're killing all these possible versions of them. And I think one of the things that people miss is when you don't have that framework, it doesn't mean those feelings and those needs and those identities go away. Right. Right. They're still there. You just don't know what to do with them. Right. Um, And they will very, very often curdle and and become dangerous to the person who's containing them exactly exactly and a lot of that comes out in forms of of self-harm and um and suicide right and so in trying to eliminate us from 
the wider world um, and, and visibility, what you're doing, it, it really is a form of harming the next generation. Yeah. Um, so when you look out into the world and when you, you started to discover transness, who are your role models? Well, my early role models were my longtime partner, Sam, uh, who was the first trans person who was really a big part of my life. I was very lucky to have nurturing and accepting cis friends. My friend, Julia Graffer, who's a just a brilliant horror cartoonist, taught me so much about makeup and fashion. And I feel like I've, I've, patterned my understanding of femininity even beyond those sort of cosmetic signifiers on the example that she gave me quite a bit. And as time wore on, I was introduced to hundreds and hundreds of, of wonderful trans people to the point where now most people I know and love in my life are trans. And then of course there are historical figures like Greer Langton, the sculptor and doll maker. And Wendy Carlos, the musician who did a, a lot of the soundtrack for The Shining and helped to invent the Moog synthesizer. Mm-hmm. Trans women are, are everywhere in popular culture and history. It's been in just an incredible, indescribable relief. And of course, no list would be complete without Divine. <laughs> Oh my God. Divine is amazing. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, and as like a fat trans woman, like she's pretty much it for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely understand. And the way I've looked at stuff when I've read a bunch of your stuff, uh, I kind of look at John Waters as, as my, my fantasy uncle and you would be my fantasy aunt, like between the two <laughs> of them. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. So when you are hosting the, the discord, Deadlights Theater. What are those discussions? Do you have discussions or is it just a joint screening? Like if our audience wants to join you for it, what what should they expect? So what it is, is a subscription service where you pay $10 a month and I screen usually eight movies, sometimes 12 movies a month. And I screen them on Discord with a chat that runs concurrently that I moderate. And, and that'll that'll range from everything from people cracking wise to really, really in-depth discussions of the movie's themes, shots, technical aspects, and like background in the history of its making. So when it comes to great horror films, what would you say are are the ones that people should view to really understand the the depth? Because this isn't just gore, right? Horror mm-hmm. is so much more than the gore. Mm-hmm. Um, so to really understand the depth and the brilliance that can come from horror filmmaking, what would you, what would you suggest people scream? Oh man, I, I can hardly think of a more daunting question. <laughs> so I'm just going to rattle off some of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Possession, The Devils, Alien and Aliens. The Wicker Man, the original, please do not speak to me of the remake. <laughs> Under the Skin, It Follows, Excision, The Haunting, Ghost Watch, The Innocence. I mean, there are so many wonderful, incredible horror movies out there that can bring you into these amazing, vulnerable spaces that'll teach you so much about yourself about how disgust 
and terror shape your view of the world and how you can spend time in contact with those feelings to understand where they come from and how to change or more deeply feel them. Horror can take you anywhere. You talk about being present with those uncomfortable feelings, and that's something so many people struggle with, right? Yeah. To to just recognize you're uncomfortable with it and not try to make it go away. Right. When did you start being able to do that and just sit with that for you? Well, you know, I think that that was very appealing to me when I was young. As I said, uh, I remember the first time my dad read The Hobbit to me, we got to the part where Bilbo and Gollum are exchanging riddles in the darkness. And I was, I was so terrified I couldn't sleep. And the next night I made him read it to me again <laughs> <laughs> because there was just something so alluring about this moment to me, about these two kind of sad, lonely people wagering their lives mm-hmm. on, on this odd little contest. And as I got older, the, this sort of ebbed and flowed for me. Mm-hmm. I went through a period in my teens where I got very sort of persnickety and cranky about media and I would get in a lot of arguments about it. And I think the thing that was most important to me was being seen as right. And then as I got through college and was able to develop some analytical skills with the help of some really fantastic teachers, and I started to meet friends like Julia, who I mentioned before, and her partner, Shanti Collins, who helped me get into film criticism. Mm -hmm. Meet these people who could help to shape my tastes and show me what was valuable about art. And I started to read film theory and develop sort of a, a background and a framework for engaging with art. And that brought me back to that place that I had had been in as a child where sometimes your reaction to being next to a lit burner is <laughs> just grab it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. As you as as you've gone through this and as you've really done a deep dive into film and, and film theory and criticism, what is missing from the current landscape of horror? Fatness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, aside from like anguish, mm-hmm. there's hardly any fat bodies in horror that are not one-off jokes or objects of revulsion. And I think that fatness is such rich territory for horror stories because to be fat is to have this really complicated acrimonious relationship with your body and to have your body be the target of so much intense hatred and persecution. So psychologically, the fat body is a really, really rich archetypal image. And because Hollywood is, I think, primarily interested in a kind of squeaky clean prestige, even above Mm -hmm. money, Mm -hmm. you just don't see fat bodies in film. Right. And if you do, it's a, it's a skinny person in a fat suit. Right. Right. Or it's a, a joke that someone who I really don't blame for needing a paycheck. Right. Showed up for. When you look, so this is a conversation that that Meg and I had, and I, I've had with a couple of other creatives. Is when you're looking 
for good film portrayals of fat fatness and fat bodies. Have you seen any? Where do you see it? Well, like I said, Anguish, I think, is a really interesting film. I just watched the new slasher film, Piggy, which I thought was interesting. Not not great. But, you know, stars a, a young fat woman as sort of the final girl. I love Hilary Mantel's novel, Beyond Black, which is okay. about a, a fat medium. Mm-hmm. like a, a spirit medium and i mean it's it's so sad it has a nuclear half-life but it's very very good and i mean aside from that i have a hard time thinking of anything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. again divine you know john yes. Waters movies of course so when it came to dealing with your own body and and how you relate to to being fat and bigger bodied how did you navigate that? How did you go about learning to live in that body? No, I, I feel like I'm I'm still learning to live in this body. It's a an ongoing challenge. I I personally like being fat. I think it's nice. I find it attractive. But the kind of things that you go through in medical settings, in public, with partners, is very draining. You mm-hmm. you get to see people react to you with a kind of honesty that people who are are normative will never experience from them. You get to see disgust in their eyes that they would, they would never show to anyone else. And in some ways I I try to look at that as a gift because you're, people are telling you who they really are, but in other ways it's, it's punishing. You know, I, I and every fat person I know has just an unlimited reservoir of memories of the people we love saying awful fat phobic stuff around us without a second thought. I think that the biggest things that have helped me to exist in my body with some kind of joy and and love and idea of my own worth have been investing in my relationships with other fat women Mm-hmm. have been finding lovers both fat and thin who really value and desire me on for for who I am and what my body is like in reality it's a it's a it's a difficult thing it is you also bring about finding joy through making relationships with other other fat women other lovers what else brings you joy well it brings me joy to not be terrified and self-loathing when I eat something that I want to eat. It mm-hmm. brings me joy to dress the way that I want to dress, to go swimming with my friends, to experience having the the respect and acclaim of the horror writing community, which is something that I've wanted since I was I was a, a child. I was going to say, in, in relationship to getting that respect, I think this novel has done it. I mean, this is billed as the most anticipated novel of 2022. And there's quite a few people who've given it wonderful reviews. Are you like some novelist where the next step is to make this into a film? Well, to quote uh, Sigourney Weaver when they approached her for the fourth Alien movie, if there's a dump truck full of money involved, I'm not made of stone. 
<laughs> um, it's not my it's not my goal. It's not my priority. I'm still mm-hmm. working on books. That's where my passion is. But if someone signs a big fat check and says, do you want to write the script? I will say yes. <laughs> so, so dear Hollywood, if you want an amazing film, just show up with a dump truck full of money. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's all it takes. It can be small bills. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I am, I am all for that and funding folks. So you are working on another book. Um, uh, yeah, I actually just finished my second novel. Okay, yeah. So the premise is fascinating. So go ahead and let our, our listeners know about what you've been working on. So the novel that I just finished my first draft of is called The Cuckoo. And it's about a group of young queer teenagers who in the mid-1990s get sent to a conversion therapy camp in the middle of the Utah desert. And once they get there, they discover that something at the camp is abducting campers and making copies of them. And the copies are straight and well-behaved and they get sent home to the parents. And I I have to say, when I read, I forget where I read that premise, but holy shit, that's like every conversion camp's fantasy, right? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, and, and as a queer teen who grew up in a religious family, that like terrifies me to my core and I cannot wait to read it. Thank you so much. You know, the, the thing that I was thinking of most when I wrote about it, there's this quote by uh, an autistic activist whose name escapes me at the moment that says, I've come to realize that the thing you most want is to look into my eyes one day and see that I am gone and someone you can love has moved in. And when I read that, I was, I was so devastated. Yeah. Because, I mean, God, we live in a country where the media regularly drums up enormous sympathy for mothers who kill their children mm-hmm. because they're disabled or autistic or in some way undesirable. I mean, that's the entire anti-vax movement. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and just the religious component. There's so many of us who grew up in conservative religious families and that's all we heard growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Let alone if you're fat, like, Oh Lord. (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, my mother is routinely disappointed in me. Like the one time she showed, she, when, um, I uh, I wrote a study and it came across Michelle Obama's desk and she emailed me and my mom was able to say, well, you know, while I'm disappointed that you're fat, at least you're doing some things to make up for it. Mother of God. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But I, I, I put that out there just because I think so many of us who are fat feel like we have to make up for it. And then you add queerness and transness and all these other things that we go through and so many of the people that we love really deeply really hate so much about us yeah and and i think that's what makes it so much harder to go through a world where people who don't even know you are then piling on to that hate because it's it can be very very taxing and challenging it can so how do you replenish yourself like and then i know with this latest article people have just been piling on shit all day on the internet. (laughs) How do you find a space to go and figure out, okay, I'm going to get up and do this again tomorrow. Like, well, my DMS are closed. 
I don't look at it and as much as I can escape it, I block everyone who comes across my timeline with any of that shit. You just have to put it out of your mind because it's, you can't have a debate with these people. You can't bring them around to understanding you as human. All you can do is, is shut them out and give them nothing. They, they would like a pound of flesh and I say that they can't afford it. Exactly. And let's let's just give praise to block buttons on social media. <laughs> oh my Absolutely. God. It's the only thing that has made any of my social media tolerable. But 100%. Yes, yes. So, so yes, uh, social media developers, please continue to add block buttons and be able to block certain terms and shit because Good it's Lord, too yeah. much to be out there otherwise. It really is. <laughs> um. Finally, if our readers want to find you, to find more than just your, your, your novel, to join Discord, all of that, throw it out. Where can we go find you? All right. You can follow me on Twitter at Scumbelievable, and you can follow, uh, you can join my Patreon, which is under my own name, Gretchen Falker Martin, where you'll get you know access to my critical writing and my horror fiction and my Discord theater, the Deadlights Theater. And I will say, if follow her, join the Patreon, all of that amazing stuff, especially for film fans, horror fans. This is some of the best stuff I've done. And I am not necessarily a huge horror aficionado, but there are some really great films in it. And it's really fun to watch them with other people. Um, so, yes. Thank you so much. I'm really glad you're enjoying it. Thank you. And thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Hi, this is Antivice from Fat Chicks on Top. I want to take a minute and talk about Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles on the most trending topics at any given moment and reads them in a natural human voice. For the first time ever, the entire internet has become listenable all in one place. This is great for accessibility needs as well as people who would rather listen than scroll. Explore trending podcasts from 50 countries. Our podcast, Fat Chicks on Top, is there too. You can download Newsly for free from www.newsly.me and use the promo code FC0T, one month free premium subscription. And now, a moment of gratitude. I'm so eternally grateful for all of my trans sisters. I don't know where I would be without them. I don't know what kind of sense of self I would have. But I do get to have them, so I don't have to find out. They are just an endless wellspring of love and connection for me. Hi, this is Auntie Vice from Fat Chicks on Top. If you like Fat Chicks and you are looking for other podcasts with great conversations, you might want to check out Chopping It Up with Ungayo, now on most streaming services.
Chicks of the World. This has been an episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Fat Chicks on Top is produced and hosted by Auntie Vice. Audio production is by A Serious Production. You can find all information about Fat Chicks on Top at fatchicksontop.com and follow Auntie Vice at Auntie Vice on most social media.